I know it's fall because I see like a sea of flannel and sweaters. And I got mine out this week too. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. We are still there. And uh, just so you know, we're going to be doing a little bit more, uh, more of a flyover today. And some of these things we're going to be unpacking uh, as the weeks continue. But we are in the third part of our message series. If you are new with us, my name is Jeff Kennedy. I'm the senior pastor. And we're in the third part of this message series called The Glory of the One and Only. And we're actually going to read and look at the passage that that title comes out of today. Uh, But I want to start with a story. I want to start with a story about a bright little girl who was pretty good at math, or at least she thought she was. And so she decided to take on some some pretty advanced math classes at school. And uh, she was struggling mightily. Unfortunately, her dad was just like me. Is math challenged. And ask all my kids, they all got my math gene that just passed on to them, so they struggle mightily as well. And so uh, she came home and brought the stuff home and said, Dad, I need your help. And he, he said, okay, let's get it out on the coffee table. And they opened up the textbook, and he started looking at it. It looked like a bunch of hieroglyphics to him. So uh, he said, honey, here's what I want you to do. This will help you. I want you to go into your room, sit at your desk, Follow the teacher's instructions, and when you get into trouble, when you get stuck, I want you to pray and ask God for help, (laughs) which is exactly what I would do and probably have done at times. Uh, Just really quickly, you know what I used to do? For you guys who are similar to me, uh, who don't have an engineering or or a science background, uh, this is a really good tip, and I'm just interrupting my story by giving you a great tip. If you want your kid to think that you're a genius, sit with your calculator kind of hidden Oh man, I I worked my kids over. They thought I was amazing, but that only works to a certain level. Anyway, so she sat at her desk and tried to get through these problems. And about 20 minutes later, she said, Daddy, I need some help. God's not helping. (laughs) And he said, Honey, just keep working at it and just pray and ask God for help. 20 minutes go by. She said, Daddy, God is still not answering. I need some help. He said, sweetheart, I want you to try harder. Just pay attention to the instructions. Ask God for help. She said, daddy, I need God with skin on. (laughs) And that is precisely what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a passage in which John wants to show us this is what it looks like when the God of the universe, this eternal Lagos, the word from eternity who created all things, puts skin on and comes and is found in appearance as a man. So the theme today comes from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis gives us our theme, and that is that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. And so, and I think that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, you can open up. And starting at verse 6, we'll start at verse 6. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this is talking about John the Baptist, not himself. And he says, he came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all men uh, might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was created through him. Remember, we said that last week, through him and for him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not even receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right 
to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, uh, nor, uh, but of the will, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Verse 14, this magisterial verse now. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have, we have observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one whom I said. The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. So just by way of recap last week, we learned that the word is our life and our light. So verses four and five, and then in six, he says the word is our life and our light. In him was the life, and that life was the light of men. Now this word for life is the word zoe. Some people name their kids Zoe. And it is probably in commemoration or uh, just to honor this word. This word in Greek is the word zoe. And that word can refer to both physical life or a general principle of life or transcendent, the God kind of life. So initially it refers to what we think of here in this context as unending life. That is everlasting, blissful existence with God. Now when a Christian talks about having eternal life, this is mostly what we mean, isn't it? Most of the time, this is what we mean. I mean, I'm going to live with God forever in an unending sort of blissful existence with the Lord. And that surely is what John has in mind also. But this word, this phrase means more than that. It also means relational life, relational life. And this means that God, that the created order is put back into its place. Everything in creation, starting with the rebels of God's realm, and creation itself is put back into proper relational alignment with God. And where is God in that chain? He's at the top. And everything is put back into alignment under him. And that's what we call relational life. And then there's what we call communal life. Communal life is the harmony that results in community and is supposed to reflect the reign of God in heaven. So here's what happens. This church, this people that God has called to himself... This people that God has called himself, we're supposed to be what it looks like. We're supposed to be sort of the exemplification of the life of God. So we have got our vertical life in, in order. We are back into alignment with the sovereign ruler of the heavens. And we have this unending forever, this blissful life that we'll experience forever with God. But we're also supposed to look like God's ideal community. That life is supposed to spill out in harmonious relationships with others. So it's the harmony that results in community, which is supposed to reflect the reign of God uh, in heaven. And so this is the kind of life that we're talking about. But he's also the light. He's also the light. Now, this word light is a little bit different than zoe. Zoe refers to the unending life, relational life, communal life, ecclesial life. But he's also the phos. The Greek word is phos. It's where we get the word phosphorus, or it's where we get the word uh, photon. And so this means sort of the raying forth. But he is the life and our light. And I think John got his concept all the way back in Isaiah 53. I want to read you that passage. Here's what it says. Here's what Isaiah said about the suffering servant. He says, after he, the suffering servant, has suffered, 
he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. So I'm going to give you a crash course on the book of Isaiah. Here's what that book's about. That book is about two servants. So there are four players in that book. There are the two servants. There's the idol and the prophet. So the two servants, the first servant is Israel. The people of Israel. And that first servant in the first half or so of the book is referred to in the plural as the nation, the people, they, you, plural, and he, that servant is unfaithful to Torah. That servant is an idolater. That servant looks much more like the surrounding nations, pagan, uh, idol-worshiping nations than they do uh, God's people. So they have failed. They have failed the covenant. Then comes the second servant. The second servant is Israel. But this Israel is not referred to in plural terms. He is referred to in the singular. He. And so now this new servant, this new Israel is going to do what the first Israel could not do. The first servant was disobedient and an idol worshiper, but the second servant, this new servant would suffer for the old. He would suffer for them and suffer for the nations. And this is what he's talking about. He is talking about the Messiah. He, the servant, suffered. How did he suffer? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, you and I are healed or reconciled to relationship with God. And so Isaiah wants us to know that our sinful, idolatrous past has now been born. All that iniquity has now been born by the second servant, the new Israel. And so the whole point here is that he is going to suffer. Now what happens to him? He dies. But then according to verse 11, he suffered. After he suffered, he sees the light of life. He is raised. He is raised back to life for our sake. And this, I think, is what John is referring to when he uses this phrase. He is talking about the eternal resurrection life that God, the Son, the suffering servant, brings us. In John three sixteen, he says, For God loved the world like this. The word so in Greek uh, can be translated this much, or it can be translated in this way. And I think here it means in this way. In what way? This way. God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That unending state of blissful existence forever in heaven with the Lord, relational alignment with the Lord and the communal life of the holy community. And then in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, when Jesus Uh, spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world, the phos. I am your light, and whoever follows me will never walk in the deception of darkness again, he says, but will have the light of life. What is he promising you? If you believe in and you follow me, you will have eternal life, which is characterized by resurrection power. So that was last week. This week, number two, we see the witnesses to his glory. The witnesses to his glory. Now he says in verse six, He says, there was a man sent from God, his name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now the word witness here is a term. It's the term martyria. 
It's where we get the word martyr. Now, it came to mean a person who gives his life for something, but right now, it just means a legal witness. A person who is summoned into court to give testimony, legal binding testimony about what they have seen and about what they know. And that's what this word means. Now, John the Baptist is in a very unique place in the Bible because he is the last Old Testament prophet for sure. I mean, Jesus says it. He's the last prophetic witness to the Messiah, but he's also the first witness of the new community in Christ. He's the first one in the New Testament, and he's the first one in this passage. So he has a binding eyewitness testimony to give about Jesus of Nazareth. And his light is purely derivative and reflective. It's just like the moon. The moon is not a source of light. The moon is a reflector of light. Just as the moon reflects the sun's light, but then fades when the sun rises, so too John's light reflects the glory of the Lord. It's not his own glory. It's not his own light. He's just a reflector. And his light is derived from Jesus. And so, now what we're going to learn over the next few weeks is that there are several witnesses who testify, he uses this word about them, who testified to the truth of the Son of God. So we learn in chapter 4, the uh, woman at Samaria, she bears witness to his truth. Jesus says the scriptures in chapter 5 bear witness to my truth. Jesus' miracles and his signs and works bear witness to his truth. The Father's voice booms out of heaven bearing witness to Jesus and his truth. And the crowd the crowd says, has there anything ever been like this in Israel? Who could do the things he does? They bear witness to his truth. And the spirit anointed apostles, the spirit comes upon the apostles or is told that they would and they shall be his testifiers as well. And then Jesus himself in chapter 18. So what we have starting right here, unfolding in this book are people who give their binding legal witness. This is who Jesus is. This is what I saw and this is his mission. This is what he's all about. Now, John wants to tell you what that, what that witness is. He wants to tell you what the character of that testimony is. Here it is. It's in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Here's what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. So this is John. <laughs> I mean, this is the same guy who wrote John 1 wrote this for sure. It says, the life appeared, and we have seen it and testify. We bear witness to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the, uh, with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that all, you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the quality of his testimony is firsthand testimony. It's firsthand testimony. He says, look, the witness of the Spirit for you is so powerful for the New Testament believer, that it defeats all your defeaters. The witness of the Spirit in your life, but, but this is what we saw. We saw him do things that are mind-boggling. We saw the signs, and then he says, we can kind of still hear the timbre of his voice ringing in our ears. We heard him speak. We touched him. We know what it's like to sit in a boat with the Messiah and smell him reeking of fish and seawater. You know what I mean? Like it was a visceral a revelation to them. They saw it with their senses. 
And this is what these witnesses are bearing witness to, and we are reading their testimony. So, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament spokesman for God. Everyone else who witnesses, they are spokesmen for God. But Jesus is not a spokesman for God. He is God speaking. Number three, the world does not receive him. Oh, this is the irony. There is irony here. The world doesn't receive him. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Indeed, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, his own people, the Jews. But his own did not receive him. The word who made the world, who flung stars and the constellations and brought everything into being, his truth was in the world and the world did not recognize him. And he came to reveal himself to his own people and his own people didn't know who he was. And so there are two kinds of revelation of the glory of God that we see and systematic theologians usually camp out in these two categories. The first one is this, general revelation. General revelation. Now what is that? That's just what you think it might be. Uh, these are sort of the revelation of God's general attributes that are in the light of creation, in nature, and in the light of human conscience, in our moral conscience. So this is what, what is called general revelation. Now, general revelation, the light of God's general attributes in the light of creation and human conscience in our sense of morality, those things are available to everyone. Those are available to everyone, whether you're a believer or not. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1. I want to read it to you. Verse 20. He says, For since the creation of the, of the world, God's invisible qualities. What are these qualities? What are these attributes? Well, they're unseen. He says, but, he says these invisible qualities, his internal, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Why are we still culpable for our sin? Because we can acknowledge God to this degree. Any person who has a rational mind or who is a reasonable, objective person could look at the grandeur of creation and extrapolate. You can extrapolate. You can surmise that whatever being created all of this is a great God. I mean, he must be a being, first of all, of unfathomable power. Just unimaginable power. So that's the first thing you could surmise. What else? You could surmise that he must be a being with nearly limitless knowledge, if not limitless knowledge. He would have to be to coordinate all this. And then to bring it into being, you could surmise that he's divine, not natural. Well, if he's the cause of it all, he can't be a product of it. He has to be something else. He has to be divine, not a natural created being. And so there are some things about God's nature that any rational, reasonable person can look at the world and say, yeah, I mean, I could extrapolate and, and really come to understand that there is a great God of the universe. Anyone could do that. But the starry hosts, a beautiful mountain vista will not give you salvation truth. For that, you need special revelation. You need special revelation. Now, what is that? Well, just what you might think. The revelation of specific attributes and the way of salvation. Uh, this revelation, uh, which is specific in the Hebrew God, and his plan of salvation is revealed in two sources. The first one is the inscripturation of the living word. What is God's word? 
It's living, it's active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Ability to cut and to divide things that are indivisible. God's word is living and it has become inscripturated or captured in a sacred book, captured in a sacred tome. And God, the word, the logos from eternity has been incarnated in a human life. So we have both of these sources of revelation. We have the scriptures, which capture God's living truth, his authoritative truth, which tell us what God is like and what the world is like. And we have this man who lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose from the dead, and he embodied the very life of God. Hallelujah. So we have these two sources of special revelation, and that will lead you to the truth about God and the way of salvation. And that's what we need. And so the world has had a response to this. A couple of responses. The first one is just not recognizing him. He came as this humble rabbi. Why? Well, he was embodied in a human life. He came as a humble rabbi doing mind-boggling miracles. And the people just did not recognize him. They could see him do things that were unbelievable, man. Call a man out of a tomb. Call a dead man who's been dead for four days and call him back to life. And then stand there and go, I'm not sure. You know, what a darkened mind, what a darkened heart. So they failed to recognize who he was, and then they rejected him. And the scripture says, when you reject him, when you reject him, you remain condemned. You stand condemned, Jesus says, already. Number four, the worshipers, though, they recognize and receive him. The worshipers recognize him. And they receive him for who he is, verses 12 through 14. He says, uh, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's stop right there. Who has the right to claim to be a child of God? Just anybody? No. He says, anybody who believes in this son, anybody who believes in this one. So he gave them the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent. These aren't from the Abrahamic lineage, although the Jews were the first people of God, the original people of God. So not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but of God's, God's will, born of God. And the word became flesh. And he made his dwelling, underline that. He made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Man, there's so much life-changing truth in this one paragraph. What do the children believe? What do they believe? Well, they believe in a doctrine called the hypostatic union. You can write that down. You can Google that later. Uh, You can Google that. Look that up on Theopedia. Um, or send me an email, I'll explain it in a little bit, little bit more detail. But this idea of the hypostatic union means two natures in one life. That is, Jesus was truly divine. So all the attributes of deity that God possessed in eternity, the Son has those attributes. He has a divine nature, and it is truly divine. Very God of very God. That's what the church father said. But he also has this other nature. It's a human nature, and he's truly human. Jesus knows what it's like to have B.O. Jesus knows what it's like to get exhausted. We're going to learn that in this book. He's exhausted or thirsty or hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to not want to get up in the morning. Jesus had a human body and he was truly human and truly divine. And both of those natures resident in one person. That is Jesus of Nazareth. 
And then he uses this amazing word, dwelling. Dwelling with us. Dwelling with us. This immediately surfaces the story of God giving the Torah law on Mount Sinai. In essence, John has structured this as a new Sinai. A new Sinai based on Exodus 33 and 34. And here's what God does in Exodus 33. What he does is he, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to show you my glory, but I can't show all of it to you or I will burn you down. So he puts him in a little rock, puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he puts his hand over his face, and God passes by, and Moses just catches a glimpse of the glory of his, of the, of his backside. But here's what God says. I will cause my goodness to pass before you. So when you think of the glory, the radiant glory of God, you think of the goodness, the omnibenevolence of our God. But then by Exodus chapter 40, they have built the tabernacle according to God's prescriptions. They have built this place, this tent. They call it the tent of meeting. It's a mobile church. It's a mobile tent meeting where God comes and dwells. And then the cloud, it says the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And now God is revealing the glory that a man couldn't stand up in, that a man couldn't penetrate because of the radiance of it and the weight of it and the power of it. And God is revealing that glory in the life of a human man, Jesus of Nazareth. So there are two things you need to know about a tabernacle. Here's the first one. It's the place where God's manifest presence dwells. It's the place where God's manifest presence dwells. So God is what we call omnipresent. Omnipresent, what does that mean? It means there, there is nowhere where God ain't. Right? Everywhere where there is to be, God is. So God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time, all the time. Right? But God is manifestly present in the sanctuary. God is manifestly present in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the place where he reveals his presence to his image bearers and they are acutely aware of the radiance of his presence and the weight of his presence. The glory of the Lord. The Hebrew word kabod, glory, means weight. It means weightiness. So God is glorious in the revelation of his radiant light and God is also heavy. God's presence is powerful. And so the first thing we need to understand is that the tabernacle is the place, the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. And we see this in the garden. A scholar G.K. Beale has observed that the garden narrative in the Old Testament is like a sanctuary. It's like a tabernacle. It's like the precursor to the tabernacle. Why? Because both of those sanctuaries face eastward. The entrance faces eastward. There are only three places in the Old Testament where the cherubim, those angels called the cherubim, are found guarding something. The first one is in the garden, the Garden of Eden. And the second one is in the tabernacle. And the second one is in the temple, the Jewish temple later. And so the cherubim are there with the flaming sword to guard the entrance of Eden. And they are there on the ritual box, this thing called the Ark of the Covenant to guard the Torah, the life of God in the Torah. And they are there in the temple. Beale also notes that Adam is told to work the land and keep it. That is exactly the same phrase that the priest and the tabernacle is given for the tabernacle and the temple. Work the tabernacle and keep it. 
you're the priest in my house. And then Psalm 52 and 92 very interestingly describe the tabernacle and the temple as a lush and verdant garden of God's presence. And we know archaeologically that those temples and that tabernacle was covered in these sort of arboreal pictures. The menorah candle stand, for example, is a tree of life. And so there are all of these parallels to the garden. Why bring that up? Because the tabernacle is the place where heaven and earth are supposed to meet. It's the place where God's manifest presence is supposed to be there with his people. The second thing you need to know about that is that it's the place where God puts his salem. This word is image. So in the Genesis story, God says, I'm going to put my salem, my image and likeness in this garden. This is the same word that is used in Isaiah when he criticizes the nations for putting salem in their temples. This word means idol. It can be translated as idol or image. And here's why God says, you are not to make a graven image of me. Because I already have one. And I put him and her in the, temp- in the tabernacle of my garden. So it's a very interesting, interesting study. And here's what we learned. Here's what we learned. We learned that God's glorified, radiant, manifest presence is tabernacling in a human being. God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands anymore. God doesn't dwell in temples, and we'll cover this more when Jesus talks about himself being the temple later. God doesn't do that anymore. What God does is God dwells among his people by the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that we collectively, the church, we are the temple. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all of us. And then when we get to the end of the story, Revelation 20 and 21, I encourage you to read it later. Revelation 20 and 21, we have this picture of what's called the New Jerusalem. I hope you have read that passage because there are a couple of things you need to know about the New Jerusalem. The first one is this. The New Jerusalem is a city. It's a metropolitan, it's a bustling metropolis full of the vocation of God's children and his people. The second thing you need to know about it is it's a garden. If you read the description of it, not only is there a river of life, there are rivers of life. Not only is there a tree of life, there are trees of life. Not only is there the eating of the fruit for health, but there's the eating of the fruit for the healing of the nations. So it's new Eden. It's a place where heaven and earth meet. And it's God's dwelling with men. And John says that Jesus, the rabbi from Podunk, Nazareth, was the enfleshment. He is the embodiment of the glory of that heavenly temple. The eternal word, God the Son from eternity, through whom he, the world was created, took up residence and dwelled. He tabernacled in human form. And God's glory does not descend upon him. God's glory comes out of him. God's glory comes forth from him. And so now he tells us that we have two possibilities here, two responses. Here's the first response. We can reject him. We can say, I don't know. That sounds weird. And I don't buy it. And I just reject that. Or we can recognize him for who he is and receive him. And John says if we do that, we, we receive eternal life. We receive this unending blissful life. We receive right relationship with God again and right communal life with one another. 
And to all received him and believed on his name, he gave the right to fellowship in holy communion. A holy communion with God and with each other. I'm going to call the ushers up and we're going to prepare to take communion this morning. Will you pray with me while we do that? You hear this morning and you've never met Jesus. You've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, God's son from eternity, God the revealed son in the first century. Would you just put your trust in him right now? Put your faith in him right now. You could pray something like this. Father, I'm a sinner and I know that I am. And I also know that there's nothing I can do about that. I can't make myself more holy or beautiful or better for you. I can't do that. So I confess all that I am. And Jesus died for my sins on a cross. And he's the one that took my penalty and he's the one that gives me his righteousness and I receive it. And because he has risen from the dead, he has defeated death and I am a believer. I am a partaker of your new life forever. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you with the scripture. I want to end our time by reading actually a passage from Revelation 21. This is the end of the story. Listen, this is the end of our story, which will be a new beginning for all of us. It's the passage that describes the, heaven, the new heaven and earth. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first order or the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, prepared like a stunning bride for her groom. And I heard a voice thundering from God's throne. What a view. Behold, to see God's ta- God tabernacling now among the people and he will tabernacle with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be among them as their God. He will wash away every tear from their eyes. Death, mourning, sorrow, pain will vanish from the earth. For the first order of things has passed away. So this is what I want to leave you with. Whatever heartache you walked in with today, whatever tears you're carrying with you, I want you to know that this is our meditation. This is how we get through the week. I am a pragmatist. I tend to want to find solutions to my problems. And when I have a problem or some trouble comes into my life, I start looking for solutions. But this is my meditation. Because ultimately, the new heaven and the new earth, that God is going to wash away. He is going to wipe every tear from our eyes, every heartache we have ever had. And I want to encourage you with that today. This is your future if you're a believer in God's one true son. 